everyone, and welcome to another episode of Bible Ask Live, where we answer your Bible questions live here on our weekly show. My name is Tina with my friends Jay and Wendy. Hi, guys. How are you? Hi. We're great. How are you? Good. It's been a while. I We wanted to just have one week off, but it ended up having to be two. So we're so happy to be together all again. And I'm so thankful for all of you guys out there, our viewers. We want to welcome all of you. Thank you for joining us tonight. If this is your first time, we just want to let you know that this is a live show uh, throughout the week or um, the last few weeks. We've been able to get quite a few questions in on our website. So if you'd like your question featured on our weekly show, you can go to bibleask.org forward slash live and you can formally submit a question there. But if you're watching live tonight, we just want to let you know, again, this is live. So if you have a question or comment or something you'd like to share with us, please be sure to put it down below in the comment section. We love interacting with our audience. It's always a lot of fun to get to know you guys and um, just hear what you guys have to say and answer questions on the fly. So um, we just want to welcome everybody who's out there on all of our social media platforms. We hope that you are enjoying yourself tonight and we hope that um, you'll get to uh, engage with us and hopefully we'll see you guys again. So or you'll continue to watch as this is a weekly show and we're here every Friday night at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, except for the last two weeks, which is <laughs> just because we had to go on vacation and whatnot. So sorry, we took two weeks off in the year. Not too bad, <laughs> I don't think. So, and I miss you guys. I miss you, Jane, Wendy. I'm so glad you guys are here tonight. Um, how is how, how are you guys? How are you? But first of all, we, we are good. It was we missed having Bible ask. It's just not the same each week without it. So we're glad to be back. It's nice to take a little vacation for once too. Yeah, yeah. Amen. No, for sure, for sure. God is good, and so I'm just grateful to get to, uh, yeah, take a breather, but then come right back into what we get to do every week, which is answer your guys's Bible questions. So, with that being said, Jerwin, do you want to pray for us so we can jump into the next, uh, the first Bible question? Yes, let's do it. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your endless blessings and all the love that you want to share to the world and the truth that you give us to cut through all the lies and deception. And we pray that you will enlighten our words, that you will guide this conversation and you will bring us all into your truth. And this we pray in the name of your wonderful son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, muted. Sorry, I muted myself. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you so much for that. All right, Wendy, what's our first question tonight? Let's go ahead and get that first question up. So Jade is asking, does the Bible teach if a woman of faith can pray for or with a male individual or a group of men who are unbelievers? That is a really great question, Jade. And I would have to say, um, you know, I think there's a lot of controversy around, um, you know, should, can a woman teach, can a woman, you know, speak to, uh, you know, another, to a man as far as, you know, biblical teachings. And there's verses that, you know, a lot of people bring up, um, you know, um, that, you know, some people say that a woman um, in First Timothy 2.12, you know, but I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. And that's usually the verse that I hear. Um, you know, women can't teach men spiritual things. And I hear what you're saying. Um, if that was the whole manner or the whole thing of this verse, but it also looks, um, you have to kind of also look at the context of what is going on here, as well as um, understanding, you know, um, the culture that it was spoken in. You know, when you go to back to the time of when, you know, Paul and Timothy were, you know, teaching this, um, you know, these things, you know, it talked about, um, you know, women being, um, these, there was a lot of new women coming into the church and, um, and a lot of them didn't know, you know, they didn't know their Bible. And so, um, it's, it's important to understand that, you know, that was kind of the, the culture of things going on. There weren't women that really understood and knew the Bible. There were a lot of new converts coming in. They really didn't know the truth and they really couldn't teach the Bible because they didn't even know it. You know, they really didn't have access to scripture and things like that. And so, you know, when you see this, um, uh, you know, and when you go up a few verses, it says in like 
in verse nine, in like manner, also the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, you know, with sobriety, you know, not with outward adorning, but with inward adorning in verse 10, um, you know, with good works. And so that was, you know, kind of the witnessing that women in this day and age were able to do. Um, so, and again, Paul also says things where he says, you know, this is my opinion. This is not scripture. Um, and he says you know, things that were just, you know, things that are, um, you know, okay, this is scripture. This is a, a, you know, thus saith the Lord and things that aren't my opinion. And when you look at, um, you know, the context also in first Timothy two twelve, he says, but I suffer not a woman to teach. He's not saying that God will never, you know, suffer women to teach. He says, I don't personally, because of, you know, just his experience in doing evangelism, he's, you know, again, women in his time didn't really know the scripture. Uh, they didn't have access to it. And so, yeah, could they teach? Not really, because they didn't, they didn't really know it. However, when you look at the Bible um, and you look through the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, um, you know, we always talk about prophets and we talk about, um, you know, a prophet is somebody who speaks on behalf of God. Some of the great prophets of the Old Testament were people like Daniel, people, even David prophesied, even, you know, the king before him, uh, Saul prophesied. They they were, in a sense, considered a prophet because they spoke on behalf of God. Now, in the Bible, do you see prophetesses, women who speak on behalf of God? Yes, you absolutely do. Um, you look at Miriam, she prophesied, you know, the sister of Moses. You look back in the book of Judges, there was Deborah, who was a prophetess as well as a judge of Israel. And so you see also when Jesus was born um, at the uh, the dedication of Christ, we see Anna, who was a prophetess, and she would always be in the temple fasting and praying and you know, prophesying. She declared to everybody, hey, this Jesus, this baby is the Messiah. So she definitely spoke to anybody. It didn't matter about who God was. She spoke on behalf of God, um, declaring the truth. So when it comes to can a woman, you know, teach uh, a woman of faith, pray for with a male individual or a group of men who are unbelievers, I would say yes. My only concern with this would be um there is a verse that I think to take wisdom into um, as far as to do this, she wouldn't do this alone. She would do this with her husband. Um, I would think that would just be wisdom. Um, you know, I as a married woman wouldn't have a private one-on-one -on -one Bible study with a man. Um, I don't think that's a wise thing because the Bible also tells us to avoid the appearance of evil. And so, you know, it's like you could be saying, oh, well, we're just studying the Bible, but it's like that doesn't look quite right to be alone with um, another man. So I would say if a woman is going to teach, she would need to do so with her husband um, or in a group with, you know, several other people, um, preferably not just her by herself, but maybe her and, you know, either, you know, a family member or a spouse or somebody to be there with her to also be a witness just to show that, you know, think nothing, <laughs> nothing uh, inappropriate is going on. So that's what I would say. Um, as far as that goes. But I think, you know, biblically speaking, can a woman of faith pray for um, with somebody else who's an unbeliever? Yes, absolutely. I, I don't see a problem with that as long as um, it's not going to uh, just um, have any appearance that something else could be going on as long as it looks appropriate and it's giving glory to God. Because, you know, um, I had a pastor once who was t uh, preaching a sermon and he gave the best example. And I, I never really thought about it this way, but he was saying, you know, what if I, as a pastor went to the single woman's house and she said, well, let's just bake some cookies. And, um, you know, he's, he said, what if I went alone in her house with her and the whole time, all we're doing is talking and baking cookies. And then I leave and somebody sees me leave her house, you know, and, um, and people ask, what what happened? Why were you in there alone? And he goes, oh, well, I was just baking cookies, totally innocent. And that's true. Maybe nothing happened. But just because it looks like there could be something inappropriate, you just need to be careful in that regard. So just making sure um, that the woman isn't putting herself in a position where she's um, looking as though she could be doing something inappropriate to you know respect herself, respect her reputation. Um, as well as to, you know, protect herself, you know, from, you know, if 
these men or this man is an unbeliever, you know, you shouldn't be alone with them because that could be dangerous. So you need to be, be careful and be wise and use wisdom. So biblically speaking, can a woman speak, you know, speak truth to unbelieving people, anyone, male or female? Yes, I, I don't think that's a problem. But again, use wisdom and discretion to ultimately give ultimate glory to God by doing it in a way that is wise and, um, and you know, preserves integrity. So Jerry, Wendy, any other thoughts on that? Nope. I totally agree with that. I appreciate the nuances also that you, you fleshed out there. <laughs> well, praise God. God is good. All right. Let's get our next question up. So it, how do you pronounce Ishmael? it? Ishmael. Okay. It is Ishmael asks, why did Noah curse Ham and what was the nature of the transgressions? People do think he sexually abused of his father. Do we have any Bible evidence of the contrary? So Ishmael, thank you for this question. And actually, yeah, I've, I've heard other people sort of uh, share that, that understanding of the Bible and maybe yeah, he was sexually abused. And I suppose it comes down to how do we define sexual abuse? But first, let's go and take a look at the what the bible says we're looking at genesis chapter 9 starting at verse 20 and it reads and noah began to be a farmer and he planted a vineyard then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent so he's in his tent and he's naked if you jump to verse 24 it says so noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger younger son had done to him. Now, if we just had these verses here, I think we could think, oh boy, you know, his youngest son, Ham, did something to Noah. So Noah's drunk, naked in his room, you know, and then Ham did something to Noah. But if we back up and look at the plain text, look at the words, we're going to get a little bit more understanding of what's going on here. And again, it's important to read all the words in their full context, because if we just take individual words, individual phrases here, we can extract a particular meaning and understanding of it. But I think together, they all sort of cement what actually happened. So if we go back to verse 22, it says, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. So what did he do? He saw the nakedness of his father. So he's, he peers in, sees his dad naked, and it's probably not just saw. He's probably looking. He's probably laughing. think it's just hilarious. He's not respecting his dad at all. And then he goes and tells his brother, again, probably in a very mocking way, say, ha guys, can you believe it? Dad's totally naked. I totally saw his, his body parts and all that. So, what a crazy old man. Yeah, that, that's probably the implications here. Then we go to verse 23. So contrast what Ham did with what we see Shem and Japheth do in the next verse. It says, but Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. So, so we have Ham who's looking at the nakedness of his dad almost it's suggesting here like intentionally it's not like whoops i accidentally saw it he's he's staring looking sham and japheth do the opposite they make sure they're not going to see their dad and they just back in there and cover him up you know showing how much they they honor their dad and respect their dad and so they covered his nakedness it says their, their faces were turned away and they did not see their father's nakedness so you know We'll look at a couple of verses and, you know, sometimes seeing the nakedness of a person is very closely associated with sex. That's that's very true. And we'll, we'll look at, again, some verses on that. But here in the context, we have being contrasted Shem who looked, sorry, Ham who looked and Shem and Japheth who did not look but covered. And I don't know any other way to faithfully read this story than, than that, that Shem... Shem and Ham did not look, they covered. Ham looked and, and intentionally looked at his dad's nakedness. I don't see in here context that he actually uh, did anything else to their dad. 
Um, and then just a little little nuance here. It's interesting that Noah didn't directly curse Ham. He jumped the generation, went straight to Canaan, who, you know, based on Canaan's lineage and all we know, he was very wicked. The Canaanites come from him. They were wicked. So we see the the wickedness of of Ham's line being passed down from generation to generation, just like how we see Shem and his righteousness, in a sense, being passed on, and we should say is ultimately God's righteousness, being passed on uh, from Shem down the generations. Eventually, we end up with Abraham, uh, who then sort of becomes a, a symbol of faith and, and righteousness. Now, na nakedness is a big deal in the Bible. And, and this is kind of a good setting of the stage for a later question we'll have about premarital sex. Like nakedness is a big deal to the Jews, to the Hebrews, and, and people during this time. So Genesis 2.25, for example, it says, uh, and they were both naked and man and wife were not ashamed. Uh, and, and believe here, actually, they were sort of covered by light. They didn't have clothes on, but they're, they're covered with God's righteousness. And once they sin, all of a sudden they realize, whoa, wait, we're naked. We're totally exposed. And then they try covering themselves up and they hide from God. Again, just feeling as vulnerable and exposed. These are very much associated with sin. Then we come to Exodus 20, verse 26. It says, uh, God is speaking here. He says, nor shall you go up the steps of my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. I mean, so so the Israelites were supposed to build ramps, but they're not supposed to build these stairs that go up to the altars because uh, the altar was big. You couldn't just drop food on it. You had to go up this ramp to get up to it. But God was like, I don't want to see steps because I don't want your nakedness exposed. Then we go to Leviticus 18, starting at verse 7. It says, the nakedness of your father or the nakedness of your mother, you shall not uncover. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. The nakedness of your father's wife, you shall not uncover, is your father's nakedness. So, so this emphasis on nakedness, 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 big deal to look at the nakedness of your your family members, including your mother and your father. So that's a huge no-no. That would be a huge embarrassment to them and a huge embarrassment on you if it ever happened uh, you know, within the Israelite camp. And I'll show now this verse I mentioned where we see uh, the nakedness, seeing someone's nakedness being very carefully associated with sex, the sex itself. Uh, Leviticus 20, starting at verse 19, it's going to be compared different no-nos. It says, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, nor of your father's sister, for that would uncover his, his near of kin. They, sh they shall bear their guilt. If a man, so that's uncovering the nakedness. Next verse says, if a man lies with his uncle's wife, he has uncovered his uncle's nakedness. They shall bear their sin. They shall die child childless. Next verse, it says, if a man takes his brother's wife, it is an unclean thing. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. So in all three of these contexts, we we sort of see this concept of nakedness being almost closely associated with sex and seeing someone's nakedness, uncovering someone's nakedness, being associated with sex. So this is where there's a little bit of validity to people who saying that uh, Ham maybe uh, sexually abused his dad. But again, if we go back and and we read the full facts, the full context of of what we were reading in Genesis nine, it really does look like here all that happened was Ham specifically staring, intentionally looking at his dad and making a mockery of his dad rather than respecting him and covering his uh, his dad in this time of nakedness, his, his time of vulnerability, his time of great embarrassment. And, and that's why the other brothers are commended and Ham, uh, or should say his son especially, gets cursed. And, and to clarify again, this curse isn't a curse like because, uh, because Noah cursed Shem. Sorry, I keep 
saying Shem and Ham, uh, curse Ham and Canaan, that therefore Canaan ends up being evil. No, this is more like a prophecy where he, under inspiration, saying, I know that your lineage is going to be evil, it's going to be wicked, and ultimately the result of sin and wickedness is falling under the curse of the law. So that's what's being said here. I know there's a lot of confusion often with that. So Tina, do you have anything you'd like to add? Uh, you know, I think um, I, I totally agree with your your interpretation of this. And I think a lot of people try to add to it more than it is, but I think it's important to understand the sinfulness of sin. I think a lot of people are like, oh, he just looked, what's the big deal? But God, I mean, is so serious about what we look at. Like, I mean, and I think that that's a big, that should teach us something because Jesus says, you know, it, people, you've said it, heard, you know, heard it said that you should not commit adultery. But I say that if you look on a woman to lust mm -hmm. after her in your heart, you've already committed adultery. And so I think, you know, even here, like at, in the book of Genesis, the teachings of Christ are already there that God is saying, don't even look at things that you shouldn't be looking at because it leads to more bigger and greater sin. And I think that's, that's a great why point. God was, yeah, I think that's why God was so serious about it. And like, when you look at the book of Psalm 101, verse three, you know, King David said, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. And, um, you know, even Job, who was so righteous, he, he said, I made a covenant with my eyes that I would not look upon, mm -hmm. you know, um, you know, a, a girl. And so, uh, you know, to basically to lust. And I think, you know, we live in a culture that's just so flooded with, you know, pornography and things like that. It's such a huge contrast to the will of God, which is for us to keep our eyes as a gateway to our minds, holy and, you know, impure. And I think that's something that God's people really, really, really have to guard. And I think it's so easy to to fall into that sin, but God is teaching us here in this beautiful story that, you know, like you just shared that, you know, we really have to be careful. And, and I, I didn't realize how many um, laws of Moses there were, you know, just, you know, after people <laughs> were, I only you know, read like half they, of them. <laughs> yeah. Crazy, there's just yeah. so many, you know, God is just clearly laying it out that do not look, don't look at certain things this is not good for you. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so I, I totally agree with that. And I just appreciate you sharing that because, um, you know, I think people want to add like, Oh, just look like that. Why would that be such a big deal? But, but it is a big deal. So yeah, I, I really appreciate that answer. Praise God. It makes yeah. me think of um, a, a couple other verses of how like men love darkness more than light. Mm. And, you know, by beholding, we become changed. So, yeah. you know, what we're looking at, we are beholding. And if we are looking at darkness, beholding darkness rather than light, that's the direction we're going to move in. It starts with what we look at. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, looking at the fruit was probably the first first step of Eve sinning. So, yep. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Shall we get our next question up? All right. So Robert is asking, what does St. John 1423 mean? Well, Robert, thank you so much for this great question. Uh, let's go to the book of John, chapter 14, verse 23, to read it for some context. And it's actually interesting. This um, There's an interesting context to this verse. Um, so actually, let's go up one verse. We'll start in verse 22 and then read um, verse 23. So actually, the context is Judas... Uh, not Iscariot, <laughs> the other Judas, uh, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? So one of Jesus's disciples, one of his faithful disciples was asking, you know, how is it you're going to show us who you are? And Jesus answered in verse 23 and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. And then Jesus, um, you know, goes on to contrast this. He does, who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. And so here, you know, Jesus is telling us, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. So first, um, and my father will love him. Not that God didn't already loved you, already love you. Because, you know, John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that um, 
he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God already loved you before. That's why he sent his son. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, and you know, God reconciling the world to himself. You know, he loved us even when we were sinful. It doesn't mean that, oh, when you love, when you obey the words of Christ, then God loves you. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is um, if you love God, then that's what's going to cause you to um, keep his word. And then the the flow of love from God will continue to flow. And he says, and we will come to him and make our home with him. When Jesus says we, this is him and the father. And almost, I would say the Holy Spirit. And that's probably the also the means through which God comes into somebody to, to dwell with him. And I would say that this is, you know, very clear when you read in a different part of John chapter 14, um, just a few verses up, if it says, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's Jesus in uh, John 14, 15. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments, which is basically his word. He's just reiterating what he already said um, in verse 23. And in verse 16, it says, and I will pray the father and he will give you another helper, which is the Holy Spirit that he may abide with you forever. So until basically Jesus comes, we're going to have the Holy Spirit. And it says, verse 17, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you just in the same way um, he described it in verse 23. So I really think that um, John 14, 23 is just a reiteration of what Christ had already said in verses 15 through 17. And so um, it's just that Jesus, you know, he, um, him and his, Jesus and the Father love you very much and he wants to be with you. But it's only when we invite Christ into us that he will dwell within us and inside of us. And he does that through the inworking of the Holy Spirit. And so, um, you know, again, it's only when we learn to love God that we can obey his word. And it's not that, you know, we obey so that we can earn salvation and so we can earn God's love because that's not how God operates. Um, God already loved us. It's just that when we understand God's love for us and then we allow God to work through us, we will basically bear the fruit of obedience, which will just come naturally as a result of loving God and God's love will be in us and um, it'll just be reciprocated back and forth. And, you know, I just, I guess I see this um, very clear, clearly too in what Christ says um, in the book of Revelation chapter three, where he um, talks about, you know, how many uh, basically um, standing at the door in verse, in Revelation three, verse 20, he says, behold, Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him, just like it says before, and dine with him and he with me. And so basically, and, and it's very much connected to um, the keeping of the law, keeping the commandments, overcoming sin, as you see in the next verse, in verse 21, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat with my father on his throne. So here again, you see Jesus and the father and him coming into our hearts and us being able to overcome only though as Christ is in us. And um, just there's a lot of that language of Christ being in you, God being in you, the Holy Spirit being in you. And when God is in you, then you can basically, if Christ is in you, you're not going to sin because you're going to have God's spirit. You know, you're going to be walking after the spirit and you won't walk after the flesh because when God is in you, you won't sin because you won't want to sin. You will want to do that which pleases God. You'll be like Christ in his character where, you know, basically he says, I delight to do your will. And the will of God is for us to keep his commandments. The will of God is to obey him and have his spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness and goodness, uh, faithfulness, you know, temperance against such there is no law because all these things are good things, which will be the natural fruit of the Holy Spirit working in you. So, um, I hope that answers your question as far as, you know, what is the meaning of this? It's basically God wants to live inside your heart and we can only, um, and we can, and, and God can and will as we invite him to. And as we do that, the natural result will be that we will 
obey Christ and we will keep his commandments of love because um, that's just a natural byproduct of having God in our hearts and knowing God's love for us. So, uh, Jay or Wendy, any other thoughts on that one? No, amen for that. Yep. Amen. Praise God. All right, let's get our next question up. So Anonymous is says, thank you for advice about adultery. We already had feeling for one another and lust. I'm stopping and asking God to sincerely forgive me and repair my marriage. So this one isn't exactly a question, but uh, first we wanted to share this because this is one perspective of how people have been blessed by what we've been sharing about what the Bible says when it comes to things like sex and sexuality. How does God want us to handle it? Um, so it's on one hand, a person has realized that Arab was way with, with adultery and being promiscuous effect ahead on his marriage. And it's great to see that um, the Holy Spirit has convicted him in his heart to, to be different and to try to restore the marriage. And we pray for you, brother, that that will go well. Um, and then from this, we want to share now the next question that we re received from somebody totally different. And you notice here, um, a totally different attitude when it comes to what we're going to be sharing, but we look forward to addressing this question. So this other anonymous says, you cannot claim premarital sex is sin by using scriptures dealing only with the marriage state. Adultery scriptures deal exclusively with partners already married. For example, you make baseless assertions and a nigh to heretical assumptions. So thank you, Anonymous. And um, say so like you're on one level, you're a little bit right in terms of logic where um, it'll be more convincing and uh, a better way of argumentation or proof to show Bible verses outside of marriage to show um, that premarital sex is wrong. So I say from a logical standpoint, that's a fair point. So we will address it this way um, from the way you suggest. Um, but I'm going to say, naturally, it's going to be hard to find examples in the Bible where premarital sex is addressed and talked about because that's a modern term. That's a modern concept for, that we use and throw around here in the modern, uh, the modern world. And when you think like a Jew and understand like a, a Jew, it's a totally different culture, a totally different context, to the point where if you say premarital sex, it's actually going to be taken somewhat like an oxymoron. How can you have premarital sex? We're dealing with a culture where we just talked about how looking at someone's nakedness is a huge, bad sin. It's right. If it's like a family member and if it's someone who's not a family member, that it's, it's equated almost with having sex with them so so this is a, a totally different concept people a, a totally different culture a totally different way of thinking and to try to say well i don't see anything um because it doesn't you know fit my modern vocabulary my modern way of thinking that's that's not the the i would say this most sound way to approach the bible the the most sound way to approach the bible is for us to get into the the jews world the hebrews world and their way of thinking, their way of communicating to understand how things really are. And I would say probably who's who, what is a safer mindset to have for us to have a modern, uh, postmodern mindset? Is that or, or would the closer to the Hebrew and Jewish mindset we get, is that probably going to be closer to God's will and the way God wants us to think? I personally will try to go back and think like a Jew, think like a Hebrew, uh, and believe that that often try to make closer to God's will. Am I saying that now I, I shun modern science? No, that's not what I'm saying. But especially when it comes to concepts of morality, I consider them to try to be far better in morality in, in many respects. Again, you, you could take it to an extreme, say, well, what about slavery, stuff like that? Okay, again, I believe we have progressed in some areas that are better. We don't have to 100% be in the mindset. But when it comes to sex, I think we have some important lessons here. And what I mentioned earlier, premarital sex for them would probably be very much akin to an oxymoron. Because as I'll show you, there's a lot of verses that really equate sex to consecrating and, and making marriage itself. 
uh, one of my favorite verse, uh, verses to show this is Genesis 24, verse 67. And that verse reads, Then Isaac brought her, speaking of Rebekah, into his mother's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. If we look here, we don't see any marriage ceremony. Now, granted, if it, if the absence of mentioning doesn't mean it didn't happen. But what I believe is a, a faithful interpretation of this verse is basically Isaac sees Rebecca. Rebecca sees Isaac. She hops off the camel, whatever she was riding. They meet. He takes her to the tent. They have sex and they've consummated the marriage. They didn't need to have this gigantic ceremony. They didn't need to have all those things. It was sex that really, boom, made Rebecca his wife. And this concept of sex and, and intimacy and seeing each other, nakedness, all these things, touch, touch intimacy, these things are very much encapsulated in the Jewish marriage uh, ceremony called the Yakud, where the husband and wife, after doing the vows, all these things, they, they have eight minutes, at least eight minutes, where they're alone in a room just to themselves. And that's considered the moment that the time when they have actually consecrated their marriage to become fully husband and wife. Really interesting. And, and before that time, they're not really allowed to ever be alone, to touch each other, to kiss. Again, I'm not speaking as Jewish experts. So I recommend you investigate this for yourself. But it's interesting that touching each other and being alone, all that big, no, 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 until you actually go through the marriage ceremony. Uh, here's an interesting verse, Exodus 22, verse 16. It says, if a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall surely pay the bride price for her to be his wife. So if a young man gets a, a young woman who's not engaged or married to somebody else and gets her to sleep with him, congrats, you just made yourself a wife in, under uh, the law of Moses. Uh, if we go to Isaiah 57, 8, it's uh, speaking of figuratively now of unfaithful Israel. It says, for you have uncovered yourself to those other than me and have gone up to them. You have enlarged your bed and made a covenant with them. You have loved their bed where you saw their nudity. And so here we see the confluence of these ideas of being naked, sleeping together, and, and then having a covenant coming out of that. Uh, they're all interrelated. Sleeping with someone is basically marrying them in the biblical perspective. Uh, Genesis 2, verse 24 to 25 now. Uh, this is very important because sex, this con sex and marriage at its core is about oneness. A man and a wife becoming like one just as in the image of God, you have the father and son who are one. And, you know, and, and so this is a way which God has uniquely made humanity to be able to partake in a, 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 in a smaller, lesser form, the oneness, the intimacy, the, the, the amazing experience that, again, fa the father and son experience as, as super close connected beings. And they don't have sex with each other. I mean, they're on a different level. It's, 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 we're talking about God, so we have no idea how it is. But, you know, they're so similar in character and personality and, and know each other so well. Um, and God wanted humanities to experience this level of deep, deep intimacy with another person. And the idea was it's supposed to be just a man and a woman and nobody else you know, other than, let's say, God being a part of that relationship. So Genesis 2, 24 to 25, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. So they're supposed to be joined, he's supposed to be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the, so this is God's, God's ideal, what God in, intended. So now, is this just being figurative when it says join to his wife and they become one flesh? Is it only speaking about spiritual oneness in marriage? 
Or is this a physical oneness as well that happens anytime two people have sex? Now let's let's talk about um, one that's now surely not that doesn't. Let's talk about intimacy now that can happen premarital premaritally. First Corinthians six fifteen, starting at verse fifteen. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot, using same language from Genesis, right? Joined to a harlot is one body with her. For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. So it says when you and you go sleep in a harlot, you're becoming physically one with her. Physically one in a way that God intended for you to only do with your wife or your, your husband. But he who is joined to the Lord in one spirit with him. So, yeah, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immor immoral immorality sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? And then it goes on to say, you know, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So, yeah, you can say, well, this is only talking about sleeping with a prostitute or a harlot, but what's the principle here? So if a woman is just sleeping around with a lot of guys and charging them money for that, that's what's wrong. But if a woman is giving her body away for free, that's okay. And you can sleep with as many of them as they want. Hope you can look at God with a straight face right in the eye and say, oh, yeah, I thought you said that was okay. Because that's not what the Bible is talking about. In fact, if we go just a little bit earlier in the same chapter of 1 Corinthians 6, we look at verse 9. It says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. And it goes on to say, you know, we'll, we'll enter into the kingdom of God. But let's, but notice that list. So homosexuals, sodomites are listed there. Adulterers are listed there. But there's this own category for fornicators. Who are the fornicators? This is a, comes from the Greek word pornos, that word where we get pornography. And the word can translate like male prostitute or a man who indulges an, in unlawful sexual intercourse, a fornicator. What's a fornicator? It's a person who has sexual intercourse with someone whom they are not married to. So, and, and as we talked about earlier today, someone who is even just looking at por pornography, Jesus says, is committing adultery in their heart. And is it only married men, therefore, who are banned and prohibited from looking at pornography and thus lusting in their hearts uh, with respect to other women? I mean, as we mentioned, the, the concept of seeing someone naked, exposing their nakedness, is something that's only supposed to happen between a husband and a wife. And and in God's eyes, when we are even looking at pornography, we are, in a sense, committing something that we should only be doing with our spouse. If we're not married, that's something we should only do with our future spouse. And we're betraying them. And this is one reason why I get a little bit riled up when I see Christians getting all upset and being all angry at homosexuals and sodomites and these folk. And they completely ignore this part about fornicators. And they will go home, they'll look at their pornography, and we're talking about, we heard statistics, even like 40% of pastors look at pornography. And these could be the very same people rallying against homosexuals, but guess what? There's on that list no fornication either. And I'm not trying to say we're all doomed to, to destruction. God is very loving, God is very patient, but... God wants us to experience something beautiful, something amazing with our spouse. And when we preserve ourselves for our spouse, when we um, abstain from these sexual sins, we are going to 
follow God's law that will help us have a better, happier relationship, more intimacy with our spouse. Because the more intimacy you can have with a spouse, the closer you can come to them, the less that you have between them, the less times and experiences you'll have with other people sexually, the better your relationship will be with your spouse. And the happier, again, you will be and they will be. Like That's what God wants us to experience. So why do we want to destroy that? Why do we think having cheap sex with random people all over the place is going to be better than deep intimacy with one single person in the image of God experiencing oneness? Mm -hmm. so, um, so we were called verging on heresy, um, but I want to share one last verse. 1 Timothy 1, starting at verse 9. Paul writes, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for the sinners, for the unholy and profane, for the murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. And if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. You see that fornication is contrary to sound doctrine. And so we must draw the line against it. Well, laws against fornication, God's intent to preserve marriage, all these things are, are the good doctrine. But promoting premarital sex, saying you could sleep with anybody and everybody, and that there will be no consequences for that. You could be you can engage in the oneness with lots of people and no consequences, like not even science backs that up anymore. So I really pray that the Lord will, if you're struggling with this and you're feeling tempted to continue engaging in, in premarital sex, that God will really impress upon your heart to change and give you um, insights to better appreciate the amazing experience that God really wants you to have with somebody else. So, Tina, Wendy, any other thoughts? No, that was beautifully done. Amen. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Tina, anything you yeah, want to add? I mean, you know, I think that was a super solid answer. And I think, you know, it's very easy for people to sometimes criticize, you know, somebody's, you know, answer or perspective of the Bible. And, you know, here at Bible Ask, all of our answers, we really try to base them on scripture. And, um, you know, anonymous, whoever you are out there, you know, I think it's kind of a big claim for you to say that we can't claim premarital sex as a sin using scripture, um, because it's very clear that it is. And, you know, to claim that we make baseless assertions to deny heretical assumptions, I, I think you really have to examine yourself to see if you're walking in the faith at this point, because I think that, um, you know, it's very easy to want to believe something just because it you think it allows you to continue in something you feel like doing, although it's contrary to the word of God. And I only say this because out of love for you, whoever you are out there, because I want you to be saved and I don't want you to be deceived because the, the working of Satan is to deceive us so he can destroy us. And if you are participating in premarital sex, that is a sin. And it is something that will cause you to lose your salvation because it is against the word of God. And I, again, I say this out of love for you, out of care, not because we're sitting here trying to, you know, defend ourselves or anything. I just care about your salvation. And all I really want is for you to be right with God. And I don't see how you can be when you are living in complete, direct, you know, <laughs> you know, rebellion against what God has clearly, clearly said in many parts of the Bible against fornication, which mm -hmm. is any sexual act outside of marriage, um, which would include premarital sex. And again, you just have to be so, so careful because, you know, Satan is working and like we see, you know, just to base it on a Bible first, if that makes you feel better, um, or if that makes it more clear. Second Thessalonians chapter two, you know, verses nine through twelve, you know, talking about the comeless coming of the lawless one, according to the working of Satan. There is law, there's a lawless doctrine coming to this world that comes basically from Satan with all powers and lying wonders, and if all unrighteous deception among those who perish. And that's not what God wants for you. That's not what we want for you. We want you to live. Um it says, for this re reason, God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they will be condemned who did not believe 
the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And I really believe that, you know, Satan wants you to have pleasure in unrighteousness, in premarital sex, in something that is outside of God's law that is, you know, unbiblical because, you know, Satan knows that it will keep you out of God's kingdom. And, you know, we're begging you, <laughs> basically we're pleading with you for the, for, for your soul to come to God and confess it and, you know, see if God doesn't convict your heart. Um, of the truth. So mm -hmm. we say this you know, out of a heart of love for you. Yeah, I just wanted to add to that too, where, you know, the Bible talks about how it is a sin against the body. And when you look at like, we study like the nervous system, mental health, emotional health, physical health, the nervous system is so central to wellness and to well-being. And you know, the way the brain, like you've probably heard the saying that neurons that fire together, wire together in the brain, right? And these things have an impact on the nervous system. And people who engage in, in fornication and sexual activity outside of, of marriage, it, you, you can see one of the biggest things they struggle with when they start to shift to wanting to like start to actually follow the, the biblical teaching here is their whole body is wired for lust and for, for fornication because they have cultivated those neurons firing together for so long and wiring together. And it's this very self detrimental problem, you know, it's self damaging to their nervous system. And when they actually try to engage in a healthy relationship, they are fighting their nervous system constantly to be able to be present and, and truly connect with, you know, that spouse or that, that partner that they are trying to have a long-term committed relationship with because their body has so rewired to this other way of operating. And I, I think that, you know, that's, that kind of illustrates to me what it means when, you know, the Bible says that it's a sin against their own body. It's, it, it, yes, it harms other people, but it harms the individual even more. <laughs> and it's, you know, learning to make that change sooner and to break free from that and to develop allow your nervous system to develop in a healthier way is what's going to lead to better connection and better relationships for the long term. So I see we actually have some comments uh, from uh, at least a new name I'm not familiar with, Control Yourself, a very apt name for uh, what we're speaking about right now. Uh, and as uh, I see we have a couple of questions, Tina. Do, do we think we can try to tackle some of those real quick? And uh, and then he has a, a comment to what yeah, we were just talking about. Yeah, I know we only have here. a few minutes, but yeah, I'd say your audience. Great. I, I, I say we we um, answer control yourself questions if that's okay with you guys. So control yourself uh, to wrap Wendy, up what we were just what speaking are the about. Um, he says, so true, brother. I used to be quite loose with my morals. I've been celebrating for going on 10 years now, waiting and praying for my life, for sorry, for my wife. This is awesome. It's a struggle so not going to lie. Celibate. Celibate. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that makes a lot more sense. Sorry. Yeah. Great. Good. Praise God for um for you, brother, and what he's been able to do. And definitely praying for your spouse is not something I necessarily thought about um, until like Wendy told me how she was praying for me. And that was around the time I was sick. And then my life really radically changed and I really found God. So definitely we encourage that and, and pray God will. I absolutely recommend praying for your spouse, for God to help them be the person that he has created them to be. And same for God to help you be the person that he has created you to be and that you two would be made perfect for each other. That prayer, I believe, completely tied into the beautiful marriage that we have every day it's like where did you come from how did you know how did i get so blessed to have such a wonderful loving supportive husband who compliments me so well and you know it it's it's kind of mind blowing right it's like one of these relationships that i i was taught like didn't exist it couldn't be real 
like, but yet it is, I experience it. I get to experience it every day. And, um, yeah, I really believe it's because of praying that prayer earnestly and seeking God's conversion of both of our hearts into more alignment with who he wants us to be mm -hmm. and aligning us for each other and preparing us for each other. So we hope these words of encouragement will be with you and keep praying, brother. Um, so we have a couple of questions from Controller Self. And he asked, uh, Wendy, would you like to read this? Looks like the sure. first question, there's two parts. Sure. Do you want to? Or maybe just one? go ahead and read in case. Wait, the, that, that one that you're on there? Okay. The, yeah. says, oh, great. I will check that. I will check that out. I do a bit of discuss discussing Christ with people of other faiths and atheists. However, I do get stuck when slavery is brought up against me. My question is, why is the term slavery used in the Old Testament when we know that they were actually employees? So that's a, a good question. And maybe this is one actually we should answer a little bit later, um, like next week. We can if you want us to do a bit more research. But uh, on some level... Like uh, in the fourth commandment, you know, we're talking about like, you know, anybody within your household. Um, I'd say it's good to read that as including you know, employees. But really, I think truth is there is slavery during the Bible times. The, the Israelites were slaves. And God did have a system where he permitted slavery to continue with them. But if we read it carefully, we see God is providing for protection of slaves. And again, by our modern standards, it, some of it shocks our conscience. But Bible scholars, when they look at the world around the Israelites at that time and the customs, the culture, the way things were, the laws of Moses were extremely radical for their day because they introduced a whole lot of rights and protections for slaves, for women, for or orphans and widows and all these like God really did a lot to move things forward to we would call liberal today to protect their rights and and preserve them and 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 give them more. He did not abolish slavery, but what we see is God is progressive in His revolution, His revelation, progressive in set, setting the bar and raising it higher and higher and higher. So like we talked about a little bit earlier. Old Testament, we have, thou shalt not commit adultery. But we go to the New Testament, Jesus raises the bar again. He says, now, don't even look lustfully at a woman. Yeah, and and, and I we have a, a video, for example, where people say, well, what about tithing? We don't see tithing in the New Testament. And that's right, because in the New Testament, Jesus again raises the bar. And he says, you know, I want you to give, my, give you my whole, I want you to give me your whole life. You know, pick up your cross and follow me. We need to give Christ everything. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. So, so things get, are progressing. And then eventually, again, in the New Testament, we get to the point where now Jesus is fully all about, okay, now I want you guys to be much more talking about freedom. I have come to set people free. And of course, he's talking about freedom from sin, freedom from deceptions, but the new the Christian church starts now doing a lot to start abolishing freedom, uh, sorry, abolishing slavery, uh, but it's incremental. Again, Paul, when he's going to the churches in, in Greece and Rome and these areas, he's not trying to be too radical so that the world and governments around them are going to hate Christianity just because they're causing such radical economic change. So he has um, the whole book of Philemon is about a slave who had run away from the slave master. And Paul basically tries to broker things and, and make it so that the slave will be welcome back. And he even offers, hey, I'm, I'm willing to pay whatever needed to make things right. So, so Christianity becomes more about... Um, if you're a slave, if you're a servant, if you are, you know, basically you're not free to go about doing what you just want to do, but you're obligated to follow somebody, you then must um, take the opportunity to at least witness to your master. So be the slave that will through 
through your obedience, through your love to them, they might have a change of heart, come to Christ, and now you'll be better off as a as a slave of a of a Christian, and maybe he'll even let you free. So that's um, the approach. So yeah, I hope that was helpful. Nice to say, oh, that would be great. Thank you. Um, is that about doing a, a deeper dive? Yeah, that was the timing of it. Okay, so yeah, maybe we could do a deeper dive to to really go into the exact language of see, no, this really is about slavery. But it give you an overview of why we as Christians shouldn't be shocked by that. And people are just quick to say, oh, well, how could we believe in a God that's pro-slavery? That's that's not really getting to know God and and looking at the big picture where again there's a big progression to being anti-slavery. I believe there's a reason why God let the North win the Civil War in, here in America because uh, it started off for the wrong reason to preserve the Union and the North was losing uh, for that point. But it wasn't until Abraham Lincoln said, "You know what? We're going to make this about freeing the slaves." That the, the tide turned and God was on our side. Uh, and then we had one more question, I believe. Do uh, Wendy, could you read that? Yeah. So the separate question is, do you guys offer any sort of uh, biblical studies? I really have been struggling to find something I can sink my teeth into. My my church's Bible study group is too something. You scroll the word. <laughs> too inconsistent. <laughs> uh, my brother's group. Um, so we, we have talked about starting Bible studies here with Bible Ask, and that's something that maybe in the near future would do. But um, I, for one, I have a ministry group that meets online every every Saturday. We have a Bible study, so I'm happy to welcome you into that group, and you can partake in those studies. And I guess you could have direct access to me and other amazing people in our community who are very skilled and can answer questions and and always excited to talk about Bible and biblical things. So uh, we'll definitely uh, work to connect with you uh, after this show. And if you are a viewer and you are interested, again, feel free to reach out to us and we're happy to connect you with us, other people, or um, you know, just equip you with the resources you need to really find that community. It really is important to be with a great community to support you as you grow spiritually. Yep. Amen. Amen. There you are. Hey, I'm sorry. I didn't step away for a moment there. But yes, amen. I, I think that's so true. And we are so grateful to all of you out there. And, you know, just so you know, you know, Bible Ask actually, um, I know Bible Ask Live is just um, a sub ministry of BibleAsk.org, which is an online ministry where we seek to answer Bible questions. So if you have questions, though, that you'd like to just look through our, you know, our library, we have all over like, what, 5,000 questions, I think, at this point, uh, with answers, um, just to, uh, as a start, uh, be sure to, to go to our website, BibleAsk.org, and you can check out lots of Bible questions and answers there, and do some studying in that regard. Um, and then a uh, just like Jay said, uh, saying, if you want to reach out to us, we'd love to hear from you and see what we can do to connect you to um, another resource. And so, um, and if you have a question that you would like featured on our weekly show, like we've been, um, we've had a lot of on our feed this week, be sure to go to our website, bibleask.org forward slash live. And we would love to feature your question live here on our weekly show as well. So um, tonight, I, we tend to try to be just about an hour, like we're a little over. So we'll go ahead and close for tonight. But we do want to thank you everyone for joining us tonight. And um, if you enjoyed it, please uh, like and share our content. It just helps us get the word out and helps us share the word of God with those around us in your uh, sphere of influence in your community. And we just want to you know, spread the gospel to as many people as possible. And um, be sure, and if you do like it as well, uh, be sure to invite others and join us again next week at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We love, um, again, hearing from you all and answering your Bible questions. So with that being said, we'll go ahead and close tonight with a word of prayer. Sir J.O. Wendy, you want to pray for us? Sure. Lord, we thank you so much for your Sabbath. We thank you for this time to come into your word, to share your word, to connect with people in the challenging questions and the, the life challenges that they are, are facing and struggling through. And we thank you for this opportunity to share your love, to introduce your direction, your path, and your plan for us and the beautiful plan that you have laid out 
that you want us to follow, that you want us to be on. And we pray that you will be with each person who is struggling to know you more. Draw them into you, guide them into you, Lord, and give them the strength to commit to your way and to follow your way, to follow your plan for them, and to put away all interests that are contrary to your love for each of us, Lord. Um, and I, you know, I say this for others, I say this for ourselves too, that you would continue to draw us nearer to you and help us to grow in your love, your character, and your ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you so much for, so much for that, Wendy. We appreciate it. And we appreciate all you uh, out there joining us. We hope to see you again next week at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. God bless you, everybody. Good night. Good night. Thank you.